0: Most people don't realize that one-third of GHG emissions comes from the agricultural sector and that 80% of the food system is powered by fossil fuels. So we have to start trying to crack that problem. Otherwise, we're, there's no way we're going to be able to meet the future demand for food, which is supposed to be 60% by increase by 2050, um, with, while still keeping us, you know, 1.5% or below. So we've got a real crisis on our hands that we need to get in front of.
1: This week's guest is Christina Skirka, a genuine difference maker and true catalyst for change in the global energy sector. As the CEO and founder of the Power for All campaign, Christina has been instrumental in shaping a movement with a truly audacious vision and goal, powering 85% of the 1.1 billion people residing in rural areas who lack reliable energy to achieve universal energy access by 2025. Christine is a beacon of inspiration galvanizing governments, nonprofits and entrepreneurs worldwide behind her mission. She's fostered partnerships with over 300 collaborators to launch pivotal, decentralized renewable energy solutions from intricate mini-grids to expansive mobile solar farms across countries like Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Sierra Leone, India, Ethiopia and Uganda. These Distributed Renewable Energy Solutions, DREs, have the potential to increase agricultural productivity, help decarbonize the food system, reduce greenhouse gases, and mitigate the worst impacts of global warming. With over two decades of expertise in the energy sector, Christina's influence extends beyond her campaign. She's a prolific speaker and writer, and as testament to her global impact, Christina serves on the United Nations Technical Advisory Group for SDG7, and in 2021 was appointed to the inaugural United Nations Food System Summit. This was recorded before last month's Climate Week in New York, where Christina hosted a panel and released a report that called for the transitioning of the $8 trillion food system out of fossil fuels into renewable energy. During the event, Christina and Power for All released research that indicates that by updating just five key farming technologies for Africa's smallholder farmers, the continent could cut emissions by 10% and boost its economy by a staggering $24.5 billion. I hope you enjoy this deep dive into Christina's inspiring journey, her visionary leadership, and the future of energy access globally. Now, over to Christina. Christina, welcome to the Impossible Network.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you today.
1: And a big shout out to the person that recommended you, Jeremy Tamamini. So I'm really, really pleased that you've found the time for this. I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, I had the good fortune of uh, meeting Jeremy actually in one of the most beautiful places in the world um at the Bellagio Center that the Rockefeller Foundation owns. We were both part of this uh, march cohort this year, mm-hmm. uh residents of the Bellagio Center and uh you know, it was it was such a an incredibly special time. So many interesting people, just a real sort of warm group who is also very intellectually curious, yeah. but the really good fortune is that jeremy and i sort of work in the same part of the world focused on you know hopefully protecting the planet for generations to come so yeah he's he became a fast friend and i think Mm -hmm. a lifelong friend and i'm delighted he referred me as well
1: brilliant okay well let's jump in perhaps we could start with two fundamental questions more about who you are and what made you you or who contributed to making you the person you are today so who who are you Christina as a human who as a human being big question for first thing in the morning
0: i mean there's so many ways to answer that question right because what makes us human it's the air we breathe it it's our belief system it's you know whatever it is that drives us and and when i think about an answer for myself in that way i just am very aware of how precious life is and I think it was uh, Mary Oliver who has that quote. You know, tell me what you're going to do with that one, with your one wild and precious life. And and I've always been motivated. I think to get the most I can out of being on the planet. I've, I actually feel a real responsibility to you know, as Thoreau had said, suck the marrow out of life. I, you know, in, in terms of you know, driving forces, and and is there something? That I need to accomplish. I mean, certainly, like many of the people I know who work in in the environmental movement, in one way or another, we we definitely want to left this place better than than how we found it. And I, of course, was uh, born many eons ago uh, in the midst of oil crises and and all of that. So, the fact that we've seen renewables get adopted to the level they have, I think, it's is something in the right direction. But You know, you also want to do things in a good way. And I spent a lot of time about a decade, maybe 15 years ago, really getting engaged in spiritual practices. So on one hand, very engaged in Buddhism, you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area is very much an epicenter for the importation of Buddhism. Um, So much of that effort grew up here and, and spread throughout the United States. Same with Yoga. But beyond that as well, we have a very active Native American church community here. And, you know, that combination of the sort of meditation work combined with also the more sort of ecstatic and emotional work of doing sweat lodges and going out on the land, I think has, has taught me a lot about myself and you know i i do want to do things in in as good of a way as possible and so that means you know how we in engage with other human beings and the choices that we make even on a daily basis and so i've never actually had a job that was just a job um i mean that's not entirely true like when i came back from several years abroad i just needed a job to pay some bills and and so I'm sure we'll get into that story at another part, but it's just, it it never felt like me. Like I, you know, it, it, it's, it's very much something for me to have work and career that is meaningful. And, and that actually is focused on, again, making, making things better than, than how I found them. So, so that explains, I think a little bit of the history we'll probably get into, which is, you know, deep engagement in political campaigns and environmental protection and, everything everything like that that I think makes me feel like, like I am living a good life and leaving behind something I can be proud
1: of. Oh, that's a brilliant answer for who you are as a human. But the question that I have to now ask is that what made you <laughs> develop that worldview, embrace Buddhism, have these yeah. values, believe that you should leave the planet better, than the fact, than you found it.
0: Well, I think uh the people who had most influence over me was teachers and just the whole educational environment. God bless my parents. And the truth is, is like I must have been like an alien. Like I showed up like ready to take on the world. My mom told me like I didn't even bother crawling. I just started walking, and you know, I I just was I came out screaming, and like I haven't stopped since. <laughs> So, but, um, the great thing I think about my parents and the relationship we had together was twofold. So one is, you know, they were the ones who actually got me out in nature on a regular basis. And every summer we would go and tour some group of national parks and through those experiences and through, even as a a very young person, having those early opportunities to feel awe in nature just was truly transformational. And so, you know, I was raised in a very different religion and church never really felt right to me, but being out in nature as my church did. And so for me, you know, I think having that early connection to the land was really, really important. And for my, my parents, they didn't really, I think, understand me. Um, again, I was kind of like an alien in my family, first generation college, like all of that oldest child, but no, youngest. Huh? so but but having said that i mean they 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 didn't stand in my way too much which was great and sometimes that's what i think change makers need is if if not somebody to help lift them up and teach them definitely people who just sort of you know, stand back and, and let them manifest whatever it is that they're going to manifest in the world. But, but because education is such an important part of my life and because I'm such a naturally curious person, really there's just probably a handful of teachers that had an outsized impact on me. And, you know, I think, I think back to strangely enough, you know, it was a, a drama teacher and a forensics teacher who had the most impact on me. So forensics, uh, yes, it is the examination of dead bodies, but it is also a competitive speech and debate. And and I, I you I, know, I was I, very
1: active. I didn't know that. You never heard
0: enough. of it? Yeah. Well, no,
1: no, <laughs> not in relation to debating.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the National Forensics League is actually a very active body in the United States. And and learning at a very young age that I wasn't actually very good at poetic interpretation, <laughs> But I was excellent at original oratory taught me just so much. I learned so much about how to think in different terms and how to organize persuasive arguments and and how to be compelling and you know at age fifteen or sixteen, I was competing at a national level alongside you know all of the other extracurriculars you know the the sports and drama and all that other stuff but But I have to say that. You know, really teaching a young brain to think in that way, to be persuasive, to have a point of view, and to be willing to be different was was really impactful. And you know, and I just got really lucky. One of my uh, best friends growing up, her dad, this this fellow by the name of Bob Hollinghorst. But, you know, I'd always admired his wife because his wife was a leader in in local politics and I interned for her and whatnot, but he took, he really took me under his wing. And, and he had me beginning to do exercises that as a 13 year old, like weren't even my radar, but, you know, things like, you know, make a list of absolutely everything that excites you or interests you. And that's going to be your uh, agenda for your life, you know? Think about what you want on your tombstone, which you know when you're 13 is a little morbid, but but it's it's in depth thinking that a teenager can get into, and so you know thinking through those things, and then you know he said something interesting to me, which is a I don't know it's something I feel uh, a little bit odd about now, but sort of like find somebody to base your life on, you know, if you don't have your own inspiration or a clear idea yet you know find somebody you admire and he had admired Benjamin Disraeli mm-hmm. very famous politician yeah, and wanted me wanted me to read his biography and you know think about that he he had an idea that I'd be in the foreign service which was something he always wanted to do but but you know just getting my thoughts in that organized in that way of thinking ahead when you're 13 is is I think kind of unusual And, you know, I I think the last person who really contributed to the way my neuro, you know, neurology works now was my thesis advisor in college, Ben Steinmo. And I have to say, I, you know, being such a curious person, being reasonably intelligent, but having a very high emotional intelligence, I mean, I could have... I think, chosen several different paths. Well, I was going to say that
1: as you were talking, the logical path would have been into politics or some form.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's where I was headed. I mean, to be sure. And in fact, my thesis uh, that I did uh, many moons ago, very much a precursor to where we are today, was political alienation in the American identity. And, you know, I did a study, a regression analysis looking at what is it that happens when we self-identify as other, right? So if we identify as say a Polish American or a female before I identify as an American and, and how does that fracture democracy? It was, you know, going through that whole exercise with him and, and having such, I think intellectual rigor demanded of me was, was really useful. And I think that's maybe the consistent theme across you know, all the various types of educators who have helped shaped who, who I am is, you know, I think a real respect for the way we think and operationalize that thinking. And so, but yeah, politics was where I was headed. I did, you know, I was head of the campus Democrats in college. I ran for student body president and won, you know, so I was very much in that direction, but. But I will say that at some point, sort of two years on, running campaigns and, you know, being in that whole milieu, I just felt a little disappointed. And I also felt like I understood how it worked a little too well, too soon. And in fact, that's one of the first things one of my bosses had said to me early on, uh, Rick Ryder, who uh, I was working in his political consulting firm. He's like, you just understand this too quickly. (laughs) But, you know, so, I mean, things got a little predictable and I always feel like that calls for a life change. So, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I ever anticipated to be exactly where I am, but, but when I actually look back at that list that Bob had me make when I was 13 years old, surprisingly, like a business owner and running a nonprofit showed up on that list.
1: (laughs) It's incredible, but nothing about, nothing about the environment and renewable energy.
0: Oh no, no, for sure. I mean, there was a whole bunch of stuff in there about like you know travel and protecting the environment and stuff. Oh, so but it was there. You- yeah, yeah. But there's also like random things on there that I don't know if I'm ever going to get to, like learning to play the guitar.
1: <laughs> oh, I don't know. I <laughs> so- <laughs> can happen anytime.
0: Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. But but yeah. So I mean, I have a lot. I mean, we are never. You know, we're never just self creations, even though so many of us like to think that we are. We're very much impacted by who we surround ourselves by, and that's why it's really important we choose carefully. You know, whether it's our friendships that we make or our spouses, you know, or just what we we choose in our relationships, how we choose to be in those relationships is is, is super fundamental. I don't know that there's anything that influences more.
1: Would you? I would say it's an interesting the way you describe it. It sounds very. It's a life of intentionality. Hmm. A lot of people sort of sleepwalk through life. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. They set goals. They have their ambition.
0: Yeah. Dachshund.
1: No, that's, that's the, that's the labradoodle that's next door. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. He'll go off in a minute. It won't take long. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, people do sleepwalk through life. I mean, I interviewed a woman called Barbara Dows, and who's a, a coach was the Olsen twins acting coach. And she used that term, you have know, walking through life until you hit, get to the grave, or whatever it was. I, I should have got the quote, right. But essentially, that's what you said most people do, but you clearly haven't been sleepwalking through life. You have been on a very intentional path since 13. The, but there was, yeah. but there was one thing. And the reason I am asking that now is there was one thing you said to me when we first had our intro conversation, where well, you mentioned that you had gone on a trip to Argentina where seeds have been planted around the whole area for renewable renewable energy. So presumably that wasn't part of the plan at that point. So it was that. So maybe you could just explain the impact of that yeah. travel and that experience.
0: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Yeah. So Like I said, I mean, I came up in Colorado politics pretty quickly. And I just felt like, you know, by the time I was in my mid-20s, like things were a little too predictable. And there's like a known path for being successful in politics, right? It's like, you know, you work some campaigns, you end up getting, you know, into a senator's or representative's office. If you're really lucky, a president's office, you go spend your, you know, two to eight years in the D.C. penitentiary. Mm -hmm. And you know, and then maybe you run, run for office. There's people who make whole careers starting in that way, basically starting out as a volunteer on campaigns and working your way up the ladder. But yeah, I am. I just, I, I, I've never really wanted my life to be predictable or traditional. And 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 I think maybe for that purpose that you were citing earlier, like I, sometimes we need things to shake us awake and. So, yeah, the, the boyfriend I was with at the time and I, like, both decided we've got three radically different ideas about how to switch up our life. So let's sell everything we have, buy a big truck and drive down to Argentina, which was actually the simplest of the options we were considering at the time, as nutty as that sounds, but. But the goal of driving down there was we were going to meet up with his uh, mom and her cadre of friends. His mom is still uh, like w- one of the most important mentors in my life that I didn't mention earlier, but I'm actually going to be going to the, the Arctic with her in a few weeks. Well, wow. <laughs> yeah, but but the idea was, is we were going down to the estancia and we were going to build a house. On this property of all these rather eccentric people, um, cause a whole bunch of people from the West ended up buying a bunch of property down in Patagonia. Many famous names and, and usually it was people who really wanted to capture some of that essence of what Colorado or California was like before it was settled. And so, yeah, it, it was a, a crazy adventure and there's so many details, you know, you can always tell what kind of traveler somebody is by the amount of detail they want about your adventure. Like what kind of truck were you driving? What did you do at the border crossing? <laughs> versus, Oh, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so we headed down and, and, I, I didn't really understand what I was seeing at the time. I'd never been in a developing country or any sort of developing environment. And as soon as we got to Mexico and on downwards through Guatemala and, you know, so on and so forth, I started seeing just the complete difference between villages that had access to energy and those that didn't. You know, those that had it were vibrant and there was life and, you know, discos and businesses and, and those that didn't were just quiet and oftentimes included people begging on the side of the road. And, and I didn't really get it, but definitely some seeds were planted for the future, which at the end of the day, I was just struck by how much more opportunity there was in a city that or a village that had electricity versus those that didn't. And so, you know, and it was kind of ironic, right? Because here I was, you know, driving down to South America to choose to live off the grid without energy, you know, to live by our hands, essentially. And, you know, the luxury of being able to make that choice to choose that because as you see here now, I have no problems with energy access, but Anyway, I, it, it didn't really surface until later in, in, in my career. But, but on, yeah, but on that, I mean, those lessons hang with you.
1: But on that trip as you're witnessing it, were these just sort of an, a, a, an inner sort of an observation? or Was this something you started to talk about with your boyfriend at the time and, and talking about the impact? And was there any sense there that this might have an impact on your life once you returned to the U.S.? Yeah.
0: Well, to be fair, I, I because remember you said when we d- depart- you, yeah. you
1: said you went there because you wanted to shake things up a bit.
0: Yeah. So there must yeah, have been yeah. a
1: point at which you sat down around a fire and said, okay, what are we going to do when we get back? <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I remember, and I remember exactly departing on November 7th, and, and the feeling and the thought I had to myself which is my life is never going to be the same again. And at the time I was thinking, well, this is going to make us or break us as a couple, which it broke us. <laughs> right? I mean, 15,000 miles is a long way yeah. to drive with somebody in a truck. <laughs>
1: yeah. A lot of intimacy.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I knew that my life would never be the same. And, you know, I think all of us have those moments in time. It's rather sort of matrix-ish, right? Blue pill, red pill. And I think I was so young and inexperienced at in life that I didn't realize how dramatic what I was doing was. It was more of just like, oh, this is going to be a life adventure. And only, you know, on return did I really understand the dramatic shift that was causing me. So now, um Justin, Sally's son, and and I were always very well matched from an environmental perspective and, you know, you know very concerned about the planet. And, you know, he spent a lot of times outdoors and and whatnot. You know, in in two years of riding horses every day, going and building a house, you know, hanging out to your point at the campfire at night, like, it's pretty magical. But at some point, you just get restless because you know that there's something you need to do. And, you know, as it turned out, I needed to do that without him. Um, and so that relationship ended, but when I came back to the United States, I literally didn't know which way was up. Like I was brokenhearted, devastated, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, young yeah, love. Um, but,
1: but back to Colorado.
0: Well, for a minute. <clears throat> yeah. I stepped back on, on ground soil in, in Colorado for a minute and then, When I was back, actually, Bob, who I mentioned earlier, his daughter, who was one of my best friends, I called her just out of the blue thinking, you know, hey, (laughs) I'll see who's around. And uh, she's like, oh, why don't you come over tonight? We're having a a focus group discussion for a dot com. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dot com? (laughs) What is that? (laughs) So- but because, you know, I, I've been living in Argentina, yeah, half time in, in, yeah, half time in the middle of nowhere and half time in Buenos Aires. And, and so, I mean, literally in the course of an evening, just like, look, we need, we just need bodies. Do you want to just move out to New York and sleep on my couch and work with us for a while? And I was like, okay. So it was a pretty flippant decision, which led to another nine months or so of complete flippancy. No real intention there except recovery from heartbreak. <laughs> <laughs> and New York's a great place to do that. But, you know, I was back and forth. So it was like, like at that time, it was like one dot com to the next, like things would get money and then they implode and whatnot. And, and I had started working with this other group and I was back and forth between San Francisco and New York. And, you know, finally they, the company I was working with at the time, I'm like, she just want to move to San Francisco. I'm like, okay. I mean, whatever. And so I did. And, and that went on, though, to be a really important stepping stone because, like all .dot coms, that one imploded, and so I needed a job. And so I reached out to my political network back from the days, and they hooked me up with somebody who was part of the Jerry Brown campaign and the original Earth Day campaign, and all that. And he was running an initiative in the state of California called Flex Your Power, and that was an effort to get us voluntarily out of. The were only blackouts that were happening thanks to the Enron scandal. So that really launched my career in energy.
1: Wow. Again, going back to that point about intentionality, there's a combination mm-hmm. of intentionality and serendipity. You've got the curiosity and courage to go down the path, the uncertain path when, when the opportunity uh, emerges. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you've got this uh, overriding intentionality to do something and have an impact, and, but you trust it in the process that led you there
0: F- when well trust i don't know i knows. mean I, at some point there's not a lot of choice yeah. right you just get pulled in a direction uh-huh. right so i don't know if it was trust as much as it was yeah. it wasn't really a i choice, suppose so. around
1: that dot-com boom and everything was outbound, boom and bust everything was imploding yeah it was a, a cha- uh-huh. challenging time for most people
0: <laughs> i'll say
1: now, <laughs> It's funny, I was in San Francisco at that time working for an ad agency called Grey. We had a lot of clients are in the tech sector. And Very it was like,
0: well known. Yeah, it was an,
1: an interesting time. Managed to survive that. But uh, it so that that flex your power, that experience of working on that. Where where was that? What was the impact of that in, in terms of the journey to where you are right. today?
0: Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I experienced was just relief because I had a job. Um, but, <laughs> but beyond that, you know, I think I, I have a very strange collection of skills. I, I mean, I honestly think I've got to be the weirdest person on the planet. It's like I've got this um, innate ability in communications uh, and advocacy and persuasion, right? That's that was formed at an early age, as we discussed. Then I have my heart, right, which is all about the environment and connecting to the earth and, and again, sort of, you know, respect for ancestors and elders and wanting to do things in a good way. Um, and then in between is this expertise that's developed over time around energy. And, and I guess what I would say is it was this sort of combination of things that just created this you know, perfect opportunity for me. And plus I actually really needed to be in San Francisco. I was, it was, I was having a hard time recovering from the breakup and all the things connected to, you know, leaving a life behind, right? Like that's not without its, its trauma. And And because, you know, as I said earlier, like the fact that the Zen center that I'm still a part of today and so much of the Zen Buddhist movement was based in San Francisco, I felt like everything I needed to heal was, was in that city. And, and it was just the perfect place, perfect time. And while the work at Flexure Power was challenging in, you know, terms of getting people to care voluntarily about using less energy, et cetera, it was also effortless. And I think that's one thing that was really helpful to this sort of transition in my current career, which is, you know, you know, you're in your genius when it doesn't feel like work and it just feels like a natural extension of yourself. And so it was, I guess what I would say is, you know, that question about inequity and all of that all of that was still sort of brewing in the background. Um, certainly, um, in the state of California, there's a population known as hard to reach, and there's several programs that are designed to support, um, lower income populations and populations who might not have so much regular access to energy. But in the state of California, we have, you know, nearly a hundred percent uptime. So, but what is unique about the state, and I think, you know, something I've been able to sort of Reapply in several places is that we are known for having, you know, basically the equivalent GDP of a country, right? Oh. So, like the fifth or sixth largest I in the it's, world. I think
1: it'd be the fourth, actually. It's oh, it could be. It yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So, so, but, but California is a serious economic force, and all of that growth in GDP and all of that growth in population has happened while our energy use has largely stayed level. And a lot of it has to do with the visionary policies established all the way back in the 70s and 80s, um, largely by the California Energy Commission. Um, And one of those key factors, right, is what's known as the loading order. So the last thing we'll do in the state is build new power generation. Everything we do before that, you know, we try to address things through energy efficiency. We try to get incentives for people to use less energy. You know, and then we also will turn to renewables before we'll, we'll we'll do more coal-fired power plants. And, you know, to be fair, we have a lot of hydro in the state, but inequity wasn't a huge issue in the state because, you know, it is such a well-developed energy infrastructure. That said, you know, for those who do have issues of inequity, you know, power, you know, bills they can't afford, et cetera, there's a number of state incentives and programs in place to manage that. So yeah, but I, I guess you know that was a good five years of my life, and right around the time Al Gore came out with the Inconvenient Truth, and I was one of the first people trained by Al Gore a million years ago. Now he's gone wow. on with the Climate Reality Project, but but that was that was fundamental. And you know, so in that time, it was right around 2006. I mean, the world was just opening up for clean technology. You know, dot com had been replaced by this boom in clean tech companies. And it was such an exciting time to be, you know, active in the space. And, and and it, but it, it was still going to be a few more years before I ended up really thinking beyond the borders of the United States for my focus.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a perfect time to pivot to the question of what are you working on to achieve before you shuffle off this mortal coil? <laughs> <laughs> and you you've you've alluded to the fact it's about power but you've you have an organization and you have a essentially a mission and vision around it so perhaps you could maybe yeah. talk to us about power for all
0: yeah thanks for that yeah so again going back to the matrix moment blue pill red pill <laughs> i've been working in clean energy, energy efficiency, et cetera, for a number of years. And I had the great fortune of around 2009, 2010, starting to work with an international company that was based in the Bay Area called d D period, L-I-G-H-T. Yeah, d was one of actually the first movers in the space of adapting renewables to end energy poverty in developing countries. And, you know, I had just come off of five years of working with the California Public Utilities Commission to lead and implement the statewide energy efficiency strategic plan. And so much of that work I did, there were so many lessons that got ported over to where I am today. But importantly, one of the things that I was very focused on in those days with the CPUC was uh, building the market for net zero energy, which means something different today. Everybody's talking, you know, about that in a slightly different term. But net zero uh, 15 years ago was really about site specific net zero. So how do you develop uh, an energy ecosystem on a building specific basis that doesn't actually need the grid? So what does that infrastructure look like, and how do we create and enforce building codes that help build that market? So, because I come from all of that work, understanding and knowing and seeing and helping to create that opportunity for rooftop solar as one of the forms of energy, when I started working with Delight, I was kind of it was it was kind of a shell shock because the incredible founders Natozin and Sam Golding—they really wanted to start the company to kill kerosene, right? So kerosene is this incredible. I mean, to be fair, it, it is a useful resource to many people on the ground, but it's also hazardous, poisonous, and causes deaths daily. So Sam, his experience during the Peace Corps, he had the unfortunate experience of one of the kids in his village being burned by a kerosene oh. lamp, and which happens far yeah, too often. It's too, very
1: common. All over yeah. mm-hmm.
0: exactly. But he took that as inspiration, went to the design school at Stanford, met Ned, and together they developed this prototype for a rooftop, well, not even rooftop yet, but it was like a an LED that was powered by a solar charger essentially. And this was I mean, you see these products all over the place now, but this was, you know, nearly like the noughties, right? Like maybe two thousand and five, two thousand and six. So, so with that prototype though, they ended up building this really impactful business. And, but, but what I was struck by is that they were still thinking at that point about killing kerosene when I could see a whole much, much bigger, broader world, right? Because of my experience with net zero. And so I was working with the company at the time to really try to help reposition for this, this bigger future. And in doing that, I developed a narrative again, going back to that weird combination of skills that I have. But I developed a narrative that um, was submitted for the Zayat then called the Future Energy Prize, mm-hmm. which was a one million dollar prize out of the UAE. And and I was, you know, struggling a little bit with acceptance of this sort of new positioning for the company. But but we won the million dollars, so I wow. had a lot of street cred after that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, <bad>. wow. <laughs>
0: So, but with that, you know, so you you won it in
1: working with Delight on the submission. Mm -hmm.
0: Ah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I wrote the whole thing. And, and then once we won, you know, there's this internal discussion of what do we do now? And my argument was like, look, we're beauty queens for a year. Let's make use of it. Let's hold thought leadership meetings. Let's do a whole leadership platform, et cetera. And so that's what we did. And universally, we ran into the same experience everywhere. You know, we have these roundtable discussions that I would lead and whether it was competitors or funders or partners at the table, people were struck by, A, that they didn't know that there was so much opportunity to change the world with these tier one, tier two products. And I can explain that in a minute. But beyond that, they were also struck by the numbers that were coming out of the IEA and others that were completely completely demotivating. Essentially back then they were saying it was going to take $700 billion to get energy to everybody. But in fact, when you look at the way that this market was scaling and you could see how quickly this kind of energy was connecting more people than most of the largest utility companies in the world today, completely changed the conversation. So as you can guess, this quickly became too big for one company. So that first thought leadership paper written in 2014 and published under the banner of d I mean, basically we got together a bunch of people in the community, um, again, you know, civil society, other companies, et cetera. And we really wanted to figure out a way to have thought leadership for this sector to change some of the things that we were hearing at the UN back then. Which was essentially, oh, these are just toys, and all these products are doing is shining a light on poverty. But in fact, we knew the results were quite different than that. So that was really the genesis of Power for All, and I, it was a it was a moment again. I, I like like when I left for Argentina, I knew that if I did this, my life would never be the same. <laughs> and I had a pretty good life, but I was actually on a call with somebody who's a board member today, Adam Browning, who started Vote Solar and let that organization for 20 years. But he's just like, Christina, you, a paper's not enough. You need, you need a campaign and you have to lead it. And I just, I remember exactly where I was. I remember the car I was in and where I was in the city. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to do this. Just, and so, yeah. Just
1: a question given yeah. it was Ned and Sam. Sam. So having, work with them in conjunction on the paper submission and winning the million dollars and using that year to uh, build your network why didn't sam and ned say look we're going to carry on building the product but we'll have uh, a parallel path where you work on an activism campaign uh, to build advocacy
0: well, I think you'd have to ask them for their own point of view, but the truth is it was just too big for one company. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you can't have an, an industry wide campaign necessarily that's housed at at one entity. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's why power for all became its own campaign, its own nonprofit and became something that helps and supports a whole range of companies in the sector. And, you know, back then, you know, mini grids were still rather nascent in the space and now they're probably getting more investment or at least nearing the level of investment that rooftop has gotten. And, you know, and now we're into what is poorly known as productive use. So, you know, appliances for weak grid environments, that kind of thing, low energy footprint coolers, et cetera, that people can use in an off grid situation to help grow Grow businesses now based on this this form of energy. So, but but it was always the intention that power for all. So going back to your question about the the mission and vision, you know the vision is not energy, right? the The, the vision is that everybody has access to the opportunity that's created by access to energy. And you know it's firmly my belief that we need every human being working together to solve this climate crisis. And, and in order to make that happen, energy is a key ingredient because people need access to the education and the opportunity that comes with that. So, so that's the, the vision is that we live in a world where everybody has access to the opportunities and benefits that come with, um, clean energy. But, but beyond that, you know, how we do that is actually by working with a network of partners. You know, I ideally would work power for all out of uh, a business. At some point, because we've created such strong relationships and partnerships in in the industry itself, but in the meantime, you know the goal is is that we organize and create momentum as a sector, and we work together on awareness raising market activation, and advocacy now, having said that, these companies are busting their butts to you know make sales you know uh, and make sure that we have the level of adoptions needed, and oftentimes. It's really hard for these companies to be able to focus on the policy regimes that will help them succeed or to do things like, you know, public relations, et cetera. So that's where we come in. And, uh, you know, we've at this point, I we've you know, we've got hundreds and hundreds of partners around the world that work with us on everything from our every other year powering jobs report, sharing their data and information to calls to action, um, as including the one we'll be launching as part of climate week in New York. So it's, it's really been a pretty amazing experience. And I think one of the best parts for me is, you know, going back to the beginning of my career in energy, I oftentimes was, was the only woman in the room, like almost always. And now, I mean, some of, you know, the most effective CEOs in the space are women. And it's just such a diverse sector, you know, especially as more and more Local companies are coming up in sub-Saharan Africa and India and others. Not, you know, I, not everything is, is a multinational company in this space. And, and I think that's actually really good. You know, let's, let's get the local change makers and the local entrepreneurs empowered and effective um, at helping to end energy poverty.
1: And this was, I mean, you were, you were ahead of your time on this because this was pre- paris and cop
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was were there times where you, where you felt why are people not getting this why 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 do i see it and other people don't it must have, there must have been a sense of frustration in those early in those early years
0: that's a great question for sure there was and at the time when we started this like the world bank wouldn't pay attention really I tried to meet with the guys who wrote this damning paper on the future of off-grid energy at the IEA, the International mm-hmm. Energy Agency. And they basically tried to put off a meeting with me as much as they could. But unfortunately, I'm very persistent. And, and you know, basically said that, you know, maybe at some point, we'd rewrite this report on the future of energy in Africa. Um, you know, and even Ernie Moniz, who was once, in a very prominent position in the Obama administration. You know, I met him, we launched the paper at this event in Ethiopia and I met him at the embassy at a reception and he just said, it's never going to (laughs) work. You know, and here we are today where hundreds of millions of people are getting energy in this way. And not just, it's not just the fact that they're able to keep lights on and charge cell phones and all that they own their energy. Mm. They don't have to keep paying to, Uh, a grid that's faulty and and an electricity company that may or may not care about them. So they were wrong. (laughs) And, and we're right. And, and for that reason, I think that's what continues to give so many people hope and inspiration and it really is an ecosystem. You you can't make this kind of systemic change with a policy. Mm-hmm. You can't do it with one program. You can't do it with one product. You need a whole ecosystem of support. And that's why we stitched together this network of CSOs and getting the media involved and finding utilities who believe in what we're doing. I mean, that's that's the whole goal here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, it's it's been quite a ride the last decade.
1: Could you there are three components to your for all part of your mission there's energy access dividends there's what you call beyond access and integrated energy could you just uh, break down those three component parts
0: yes i'm happy to so you know everybody needs some structure right and and when we when we first started out the campaign and it was this incredible coming together of all these great organizations you know solar aid sierra Club, Practical action, again, many of the companies, I mean, it's just an incredible sort of launch committee. But, But right after launch, we knew that we needed to focus our efforts on where we'd be able to really find the most effective levers of change, that levers that were so powerful that if we pulled them, they would transform forever the pace of access. And And so we realized that one of the things we ran into all the time, oftentimes meeting with country governments, trying to work with them to uh, evolve their energy policies. So they had, you know, specific carve outs for our types of technologies and that kind of thing. We knew we needed proof and there was a real lack of proof in those early days. Oftentimes people were relying on secondary and tertiary resources. So we developed a whole program of work known as the Energy Access Dividends. And that's the the sort of actual math that's done um, to prove out the benefits of using this kind of technology versus waiting for a grid that in many cases will never come. So that's that's really run by PhD, you know, very in-depth research we do across a whole different category of activity beyond access is meant to get us beyond that first connection. So obviously, the core of our work is trying to get first connections to people through the awareness raising and the advocacy that we do. But now, especially as the sector has grown, there is a whole body of work to be done beyond that, including working with the adjacent SDGs to SDG seven, right? And so in many cases, like take, for example, SDG two, which is focused on health, nutrition, food systems. So, so in that, if we build demand and we build awareness of what decentralized renewables can do for health, for education, et cetera, that's going to also help create demand that will accelerate adoption, right? And then the last piece, this integrated energy component is always been the sort of golden chalice that if we could get utilities in developing countries to take our work seriously and not see this as like a side gig or, you know, maybe a nice giveaway to certain customers, but an integral part of business, that that would really transform the thinking about what an energy system could look like. And so those three areas of work make up our entire focus. We have a very global team. There's a little concentration of us based in California, but, you know, I myself spend about 50% of my time on airplanes right now. So, but it's, it's you know, that focus is all with a lens on effective strategies that, again, would really help accelerate the systems change that we're hoping to see.
1: How did you decide in those early days what your geographical focus would be? Because the mm. the, the, the type of systemic... Problems that exist—they're global. You had to presumably gone right. We're going to start with this market and this market opportunity. <clears throat> so, what what was that?
0: You know, I mean, there's all sorts of issues with data collection, as you could guess, but but we do know largely where energy poverty resides, and and that is in parts of India, Southeast Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. But actually, the entire continent. Is, is struggling. So we we know those numbers and we know, so we know where the epicenter of the problems are. Now that said, you'd be shocked to find out um, how many places, for example, in Italy that don't have energy access. We have entire communities in the United States that don't have energy access, but you're right. We did have to make a determination about where we would focus. So as part of a paper we wrote in 2017, we really focused on what are the known repeatable things that can be done from a policy perspective to grow the market and in that we looked at the absence of where those things were so certain policies standards etc and so you know there's probably one could argue uh, around 50 to 60 countries that have a really significant problem with energy access But we focus on those that 50% or less of the population has access. That's sort of our first cut. But then beyond that, there's a sort of sweet spot in there where we can make a difference. We're really a catalyst organization. And so for us to try to work in a place like Rwanda or Ghana, that's got so much progress already, has a lot of great policies on the book, a lot of companies, like very active markets. That's, you know, if a donor wanted to discuss it with us, we'd be open to it. But it's, Probably not where we're going to seek out funds to, to work. And by the same token, the other end of the spectrum isn't a great place for us to play either. You know, like South Sudan, for example, there's very little market there. A lot of it is refugee status, et cetera. But because we are a market based organization that's working to accelerate adoption of decentralized renewable energy, there is a group of about 25 countries that are a bit of a sweet spot for us that have maybe the beginnings of a market, maybe don't have all the policies they need, maybe need to see awareness grow. That's really where we end up focusing. So so that's how we made the choice. We're really trying to make the best use of our particular model and effort and the best use of donor dollars.
1: And then what alliances do you have to build
0: mm. either
1: with NGOs or uh, politically in those countries? Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, in all cases, I always recommend to everyone, and it's just our ethos, that when you start to work in a new country, you need to be really humble. Mm -hmm. And you need to, I think, get to know everybody on the ground first and and do a bit of a gap analysis to make sure what your unique offering is, is wanted and needed. A a lot of people call us the PR agency for the decentralized renewable sector. And we wear that like a, a badge of pride. Because communications is essential to getting this market to change. And so oftentimes that's one place we can always slot in. But but beyond that, you know, again, we sort of see the ecosystem as having some core components. So one is the companies themselves, right? Because we are here to help support the companies do this great work of making sure everybody gets access to energy. CSOs, oftentimes, especially locally grown CSOs, are the trusted advisors, the trusted voices by many of the customers, so that's our third sort of community group, who need to adopt this technology. But policymakers, again, utilities, and and of course, media are all critical components of this ecosystem. So, you know, in every country we work in, there is usually a, a donor who's in, in poll position. So one country might have more of a leadership role. There's usually a donor coordinating community um, involved. You know, we always want to to also establish relationships there. I mean, not just for funding, but also to make sure we know what's going on. But <laughs> it's like building any political campaign, really. You know, you have to to find your supporters. You have to support them. And then you need to work together on meaningful change.
1: Mm. So could, could you give a, an example, a human story where impact has been made and you could, so people could contextualize it?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think probably my favorite story, because it really was a, a pet project of mine, um, was our utilities 2.0 integrated energy pilot in Uganda. So especially with my background working with utilities in developed countries, And seeing what decentralized had to offer in a developed world, I was quite aware that there was a lack of conversation about a future of energy that was integrated in developing countries. So in about 2018, with some funding by the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, we brought together 30 people uh, at the Bellagio Center, um, which is also where I met Jeremy, but, but it's also a great conference location. But it was about 30 people from the global north and 30 people from the global south. It was equal parts decentralized, equal parts centralized energy. And we were together for three days to try amongst ourselves to figure out what does the future of energy look like in this developing world context where neither decentralized nor centralized is is purpose-built to solve this problem alone. And so with that effort, there emerged such enthusiasm and some of the ideas developed that there was literally demand to do a pilot in a country. And, and none of us knew exactly what it would mean. But, you know, Uganda signed up and our, our partner company signed up. And together we figured out in a very collaborative fashion how we could address each other's business challenges with our comparative advantages. You know, so in one case, you have utilities, which don't have a great reputation usually for being super customer centric, responsive, you know, and they're very much encumbered by regulation, but they have incredible access to capital. They have a no brand in many countries and it still is seen as, you know, a preferred source of power you know, you take that mix and you pair it up with the innovation and adaptability of decentralized renewables with the intense customer focus. And certainly there had to be a way to address like a known business problem by working together. So out of that effort, we created several business models, again, working together side by side with the utility and finally launched a pilot that was designed to help address one of the utility's biggest problems and why they weren't doing those first connections for more, most people, which was creating a meaningful load where they wouldn't lo- lose money once it was interconnected to the grid. So we picked a typical sort of peri-urban environment and worked together and had five different companies involved in creating this completely new way of doing business and the results were incredible. I mean, not only did we beat all of our anticipated expectations in terms of speed to access, quality of access, et cetera, but we were able to grow the demand for power in that center by partnering up with another company that provided appliances and appliance financing. So people had ways to create businesses and this community became this epicenter for miles around. Like people would come and they want to come to the disco. They'd mm. want to come to the health center. All these businesses sprung up that we didn't even predict. Like we thought maybe a couple would spring up, but not the amount that we had. And so, so that was incredibly
1: hard. How, what sort of oh, timeline would that be?
0: Yeah, like a handful of months.
1: Wow, I mean, it, it was
0: an incredible experience. Yeah. It was an incredible experience.
1: So when you talk about sort of distributed Mm -hmm. energy and and access, you've got the utility, which is using traditional technologies. Are you, you're using, is it mainly solar?
0: Yeah, at this point, it's mostly solar. And, you know, certainly there's wind applications and a lot of microhydro, but at this point, it's mostly solar.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So the impact that that has, then it's a it's an economic accelerator. So you talked about obviously the the access. There's a the human the safety element to it when, when getting rid of things like kerosene or, or burning yeah. wood. There's the educational yeah. impact on children. So the so that presumably be, must have become a case study for you to then roll out in other markets and scale this.
0: Yeah, we're actually, um, finalists for a really big international award, um, called the Ashton Award. And it's not, I just want to make the, um, the point that it's not just Power for All. This was actually about our model of stitching together partnerships and creating an ecosystem that can transform a system. And, and so that's what's really magical about it. But yeah, it's been fascinating. And, you know, we had a milestone event back in June and. You know, brought together the government who was necessary. You know, you have to get all sorts of local approvals from the local village council, et cetera. So we just kind of brought the whole community together. And it was such a gratifying moment because I literally didn't have to say anything. Like the government, you know, the renewable energy commissioner was singing the praises of the pilot, said, This is the future of energy. Described how he was recently at an event that was Pan Africa and he had. Five different countries coming up who had heard about the pilot wanting to learn from him how this was accomplished. So the, the hope always is that we can step out of the way, you know, lead from the side or leave from behind when needed. But, you know, the goal now is to really be sure that people understand what's possible through collaboration and partnership and and by by working together and and hopefully that absolutely takes flight from here
1: how do you deal with when you're working with utilities that might be profit driven by profit motive where you're building decentralized networks where the the customers aren't having to pay for anything where's the incentive for the utility
0: right well so first of all the companies the decentralized renewable companies are also profit oh, okay, none of this yeah. works yeah, None of this works unless people are making money. We need businesses, mm-hmm. uh, sustainable businesses for this to happen. Oftentimes, utilities are motivated because they're not hitting their numbers on their own. As I said, it's very expensive and challenging to connect people and teach them how to use energy and teach them how to grow their energy demand. Mm-hmm. So But, but beyond that, you know, I just want to say that people who work at utilities are humans (laughs) and, and they live in these conditions, right? Mm -hmm. They, they, they have no interest in people in their own countries being without energy because of the opportunity that's created when you do have it. So, you know, I will say we got especially lucky working with Umeme in Uganda. I have never, ever seen a utility anywhere in the world that I've worked was so committed to innovating and trying new things. And hopefully that serves
1: as a model for others. Mm -hmm. What's path dependency?
0: Yeah. So path dependency is something that you hear a lot about, especially in our circles that are focused on avoiding further climate change. But basically it's defaulting to the current practice. And so One of our challenges with so much grid infrastructure built out is that you actually have a technical path dependency built in. Mm -hmm. So there's an incentive, no matter how crappy a grid is, to keep building it out because it's what you know. So it's super important that we do things to intervene in the thinking and infrastructure build out to make sure that there's a way to have more resilient systems and hopefully avoid some of the mistakes we made in the United States.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny, I said I'm in Mexico City at the moment. We went for the weekend to a place called Puebla, which is a couple of hours south, I think, of Mexico City. Yeah. And it was really interesting driving through some of the, the small towns and neighborhoods and just seeing the smokestacks coming out of these, essentially would amount to shanty towns. I I sat last night at dinner talking to a couple of people who are working at entomology, entomologists working with insects. Yeah, yeah, and they were talking about the degradation of insect populations, ants and, and butterflies, and the the impact that's having on ecosystems. In thought, you look at these small communities, and you're driving through these tiny little towns and villages, and thinking these people don't have opportunity, but they they're all desperate, probably for education, for economic opportunity. Everyone's yeah. there selling something, trying to sort of scrape a living. If you were to bring these distributed networks to them and, and have the impact you're having, in that, that example you gave in Uganda, you've got to see these small communities flourish. But then isn't there this paradox that we're dealing with as we get to this these growing micro-economies? Isn't there a conflict there with the... I know there's a degrowth movement that want to try and sort of scale back growth, and they think that's the problem that we face in terms of climate. Presumably, the, what we have to then do is balance... Uh, to make these communities more sustainable because they're going to want to grow, they're going to want to travel, they're going to want to have cars and and everything. And and how do we deal with that conundrum and that paradox that we want to give Mm. people education, we want to give them access, we want to give them health and equity and justice. Yet at the same time, we know that it will probably result in even more emissions.
0: Well, that's where how we generate power comes into the equation, right? (laughs) I mean you know unfortunately we're reaping right now the negative externalities of a century built on the back of coal and fossil fuel mm-hmm. and you know it's it's frightening that's one word to use but but where we are is also a place to feel empowered because we have the technology we need i think with some exceptions around batter- batteries and storage and making storage more affordable mm-hmm. But, you know, so much renewable technology is so affordable now. I mean, obviously, if farmers in Rwanda can purchase their own power systems, I mean, that tells you something, right? And so so I don't think it all has to be bleak, but it does require a real step change and a real focus on accelerating adoption of renewables because it's not going to happen by itself. Mm. We have to make it happen.
1: Mm. Do you feel... Optimistic that there are people in these countries. So if you talk about the 25 you identified that really? are working to do exactly as you say.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. Every time, like I just, you know, whenever we have industry events or, you know, I just think about all the different countries we've worked in. I mean, there's always change makers who care and want the opportunity. I, I honestly I've it's just so heartening. to to work in these countries because people want to find a way out. And, you know, again, the more we can empower local populations with technology, knowledge, resources, and then step out of the way, Mm -hmm. the better as far as I'm concerned.
1: And presumably it must be uh, fundamentally important as we are seeing, you know, just leaving aside the sort of the wildfires in Canada, as we're seeing evidence of, climate change and the impact of just the rising temperatures right now and the impact that's having on agriculture that I was talking to these guys last night about yeah. the giving farmers the opportunity to have their own grids to power to create their own agricultural systems that can be adaptable to the changing climate presumably that is important to avoid further sort of migration and to allow them to be economically viable
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in the situation that we're talking about, so there's a a fairly deep overlap between the countries that, you know, have generalized energy poverty and those that need better access to the means of productivity to be more productive farmers. Right. So in most of these countries, 70, 80 percent of the population works in ag. And almost exclusively, largely with handheld, you know, non-electrical needs of production. So it's actually a bit of an interesting history when you look back at how agriculture develops into this global, you know, complex, multi-tiered system that we have today. It's certainly nothing that we would have recognized a hundred years ago or could have even anticipated there's certainly a lot to be said when you think about how big oil has monopolized a very critical resource that is oftentimes largely found on the continent of Africa. And um, many times you'll also see a conglomeration approach to grains and to some of the most critical sort of core crops to, to feed the continent. So for us, I guess the The point I would make is we need to democratize the means of production. In the same way I want to democratize energy at a household level, I want to do that at a business level and agriculture as a business. And unfortunately, we're in a situation right now where, you know, the vast majority of smallholder farmers, of which there's half a billion in the world, you know, are responsible for feeding their local populations, Right. But those local populations are also about to explode. In fact, when we look at the continent of Africa alone, we can anticipate that half of the population growth by 2050, which is meant to be 10 billion people, is going to be on that continent. And if we don't figure out a way to democratize the means of productivity and we don't insulate food systems from the kind of chaos created by the spike in fuel prices and the Ukraine invasion, then we're never going to make it, especially if we keep producing, you know, food as we always have. In fact, most people don't realize that one third of GHG emissions comes from the agricultural sector and that 80% of the food system is powered by fossil fuels. So we have to start trying to crack that problem. Otherwise, we're, there's no way we're going to be able to meet the future demand for food, which is it's supposed to be 60% by increase by 2050. Um, with, while still keeping us, you know, 1.5 or below. So we've got a real crisis on our hands that we need to get in front of.
1: And presumably the, the, the uh, big agricultural companies, you know, agricultural industrial complex and big oil, they don't care about that. They're just going to see that as a market opportunity. So there's a bit of a race and a battle to win the hearts and minds of these small farmers and get them to embrace the right technology.
0: Yeah, well, I think in most cases, you know, we've already seen this because just anecdotal evidence from one of our partners in Ethiopia, you know, as the fuel prices went up to power a diesel powered water pump, Not just did the prices go up, but the quality of the fuel came down. And so these pumps were breaking for some of the farmers in our network out there. And so it's creating a market opportunity for solar powered water pumps to come in and really take advantage and become the new chosen technology. But there's all sorts of things that need to be in place to make that happen. The most important is access to finance. And that's one of the places where I think we really fall down as a global community. You know, we talk about climate change and yet, you know, somewhere between one and 4% of philanthropic dollars are going to really fight climate change. And most of that doesn't make its way to agriculture. What we've seen a lot of is, is investments, which are powered by fossil fuels usually to make seeds more productive, more fertilizers, that kind of thing. Um, but we are starting to reach some very natural limits that the earth is imposing on us of what we can actually do with that. And so finding a way to bring, you know, cold storage alone powered by renewable energy to farmers is could make a huge difference. That's where 40% of our losses come from. So there's all sorts of stuff that just needs, I think it, it's now time to shine a, shine a light on this problem the same way 10 years ago we did just on the topic of first connections themselves
1: mm. so if it, people want to learn more and they want to help and they want to join you and, and become yeah. part of your alliance and, uh, you know whether they're whether they're a corporate with a, a a sustainable a good sustainable business strategy and they believe they can help how would they contact you and how would they sign up
0: oh yeah thanks for that question we are always happy to take donations. <laughs> so powerforall.org. But beyond that, we do really want to see more people getting behind this as a topic. So everything we create is open source. So we'll be publishing a, a call to action around the ag sector. All of that research can and should be used by anybody who wants to sort of join the echo of voices. But beyond that, you know, I think one of the most important things people can do is support the renewable energy sector, regardless of where they live. I mean, I think one of the things to take away from this is that, you know, whether you live in Senegal or whether you live in San Francisco, you can make a choice to choose more sustainable energy. And that always helps build the market. And so I'm, I'm always going to advocate for that, but I, I also think we just need to challenge our own thinking and, you know, it's, it's always been my hope that I, I have two grandkids that they grow up thinking that renewable energy is business as usual and not some strange exotic form of energy. But yeah, well, of course I've seen a windmill before. Oh, yeah, of course. Rooftop array. Perfect. You know, and that it would seem weird to them to choose fossil fuels instead. So, but that's something we all have in our power to change our thinking and change the way our circles think about renewables. So, those are all things that are in service to the greater purpose and vision. But engaging with Power for All, you can always hit info at Power for All or hit me up on all the socials. You can find me at anything related to Christina Skirka mm-hmm. because I am the only Christina Skirka anywhere <laughs> in the world. <laughs>
1: We were a couple of conversations had recently is about with people have been about the growing meta crisis post COVID Mm. that we're uh, witnessing um, anxiety with climate, um, concerns over the future of work with AI, uh, geopolitical issues, war in Ukraine, and all these things are building and affecting sort of um, people's sense of well being overall and communities. Are you seeing any of this impacting? Any of the work that you're doing in any of the markets?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, certainly there's new urgency. But beyond that, I, I do think that sort of global unease that you're referring to is actually well founded because systems, you know, they fail all at once. You know, there's little degradations in systemic behavior. And then all of a sudden a system fails. I mean, look at the savings and loan crisis in 2008. And with our global interconnected community now, there's no way that like crappy mortgages in the United States, anybody ever would have thought would have affected exchange rates in Europe, right? But it did. So I think there is a growing concern about systemic failure of our entire situation. And, you know, for me, and for many of the people I work with, the antidote to that unease and that fear is to get engaged mm-hmm. and to make change happen. And, and I really think that's where we're at right now.
1: It's funny, going back to, because it's front of mind from my conversation last night, the, the, mm-hmm. the entomologist that was focusing on ants. We were talking about ant colonies and how they are self-organizing. Although there's a queen, they're not really hierarchical. Cause they're all, they all have their jobs to do and they all contribute to the, the mm-hmm. finding the right resources to power the colony. When you start to think mm-hmm. about ant colonies and he said, you know, they're, they're all competing against each other, but they're all independent in a sense. They're, yeah. they're, they're, it's a, it's almost like a good metaphor for a distributed power network. So as you mm-hmm. see these distributed energy networks in communities growing around whether it be sub-Saharan Africa or uh, uh, Southeast Asia, you could think about them and the natural, you know, it's maybe just the natural way that we should be living in decentralized communities, not relying on on non-natural connected global grids of energy. Because maybe we've just reached the limit and what we're moving towards is a way that we should be actually empowering um, these um, emerging communities so it's interesting. I, I'm just saying that as a, as, a, as a reflection. If you're going to achieve the goals that you've set yourself and your overall vision, in advertising, whenever we're talking about a brief and a, and a, and a challenge and a, and a story for a brand, said you've got to have an enemy. There's always got to be a hero and there's always got to be an enemy and there's always got to be something you've got to overcome. Your enemy is fossil fuels, presumably. So how do you deal with... And who do you have to work with to help overcome the challenges that you come from your enemy, the fossil fuel industry and their lobbyists, who don't really care, presumably. I, I suspect they don't care about the work you're doing and power for all. And if they do care, they want it to come from fossil fuels.
0: Yeah. I think our biggest enemy is business as usual. Hmm. And so for me, changing... Business as usual is actually the main criteria. Now, where do fossil fuels sit in that right now? But that said, I mean, you can't you also cannot uh, ignore how much progress was built on the back of fossil fuels, right? I mean, I mean, I'm sitting here today in this home with this energy because there was a very powerful set of scientists and entrepreneurs, etc who helped take some risks and and bring light to the darkness in the United States. But they've had a hundred years to get it right. And there's still 700 million people that don't have any access to energy. So clearly business as usual isn't working. Hmm. If the goal is to make sure everybody has access to opportunity that comes with with energy.
1: So you've come a long way. Since you started out in, let's say, the late noughties with this, and where you stand now today, let's say seven years away from 2030, and the goals that have been set by the SDGs and the work you've been doing pre the SDGs. Putting in context where you are today, what's your what's success for you, let's say 2030 or 2035, and what do you hope to achieve by then? Yeah.
0: Right, I mean, there's a global perspective on that, which, of course, would be great if all the SDGs were achieved. Of course,
1: yeah. <laughs> you, you must, you must have your own personal perspective uh, yeah. and and hopes.
0: Yeah, but honestly, my hope would be is that we're out of business by 2030 because there has been so much change, mm-hmm. and there's so much local ownership of getting and an into energy poverty in the countries that are suffering from energy poverty that we're not really needed anymore. That would be my hope.
1: Okay. And then my next question is, what are the barriers standing in the way if you going out of business?
0: <laughs> Which is a funny thing to ask somebody who runs a business. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, the barriers are, I think, lack of adequate funding mm-hmm. for this sector as a whole. Lack of enough support from a climate perspective, but also to support the SDGs. And and essentially, we've built up our campaign around all of the things that are the barriers and challenges, right? Like, we have to get the right level of awareness and urgency. Mm -hmm. We need to get markets built to a point where they can start to take off on their own. We need to get out of the early adopters and innovators if you're thinking about the, you know, diffusion of markets curve, right? We need to get this to be something that, you know, people squarely in, you know, in the middle of that curve are taking on. And advocacy, we... We need policies in place that support this sector in eternity, essentially. And we need to be thinking ahead to things like, how do we support further integration of decentralized resources onto existing grids so that we have reliable power, right? I mean, energy poverty isn't just no connection. It's also an unreliable connection. And so all of these things are are really what's standing in the way of checking the box next to SDG 7 as done. And so it's, it's not just a matter of finance, but it's finance going to the right places. So we need to be sure, for example, we're getting money in the hands of local banks that can loan to local farmers so they can buy these products and services and change things from the ground up.
1: Christina, I know I've taken your time and it's been really interesting. And I've got so many more questions. and We'll maybe do a follow-up on this. But my last question is always, who do I interview next?
0: Yeah. Well, I've already got a couple of people I'm going to introduce you to. I, I would love for sure to see more women interviewed. And in particular, one person I'm going to be introducing you to is a friend of mine who runs a startup called BIA based in Spain. I will also be likely connecting you to some other female change makers. So more women, changemakers. Sounds great.
1: Well, as a changemaker and difference maker yourself, I applaud you and wish you all the best of luck and I'll be staying in touch and connecting you to other people as well. So thank you very much for your time. That's
0: perfect. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye.
1: Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much We'll see you next time.